Hello and welcome to the Hearsay Sidebar, a podcast where the Hearsay team gets together around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. The Hearsay Sidebar is a podcast by Lext Australia, a legal innovation company that makes the law easier to access and easier to practice. Hello and welcome to Hearsay Sidebar, the podcast where the Hearsay team gathers around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. Joining me today in the Curiosity Recording Room is Hearsay's researcher, Jacob Melby. Hello there. I am Hearsay's researcher. I'm also studying IP law at the moment, so... Yes, you are, and you wanted to come into the recording room and talk to us a little bit about copyright. Yeah, exactly. This is about sampling... Copying, in quotes. (laughs) It's a spectrum, right? There's well-attributed, perhaps licensed sampling at one end of the spectrum, and there's copyright infringement slash theft at the other side of that spectrum, right? And we'll be touching on all those, I think. We're talking about the spectrum because, I guess, inspiration, sampling, that drawing on other creative works to inspire your own creative work is an important part of music and pop music, isn't it? Exactly. And there's so many cases at the moment where you see maybe smaller creators coming to the courts and saying, I think that this big artist has listened to my music and then tried to recreate it and thought it was good. And that's why we have the courts in place is we want them to protect the little man like that so that they don't just get, you know, rolled over and and they can get a, you know, reward for their intellectual work. But oftentimes... Allegedly, potentially, you might see more vexatious or frivolous Mm. cases brought to the courts where maybe there is a similarity seen between the two works, but they're not necessarily, you know, the big writers didn't necessarily base it on the other person's, and it might have just been a coincidence. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get into that a a little bit later in the episode, but as that renowned jurist Ed Sheeran has said, there is only so many combinations of notes and chords in Western musical theory, so there's bound to be some similarity between, between some different songs. But before we get right into those cases that you're describing, Jacob, let's talk a little bit about how copyright works, both here in Australia and in the US, because it's important for us to understand that so that we understand these cases that we're talking about. So here in Australia, how does copyright work? Let's start with what copyright is. So copyright is a group of intellectual property rights that protect an author's expression of an idea. Yeah, and that's an an artistic idea or a literary idea. There's a number of different categories. And it distinguishes itself from other intellectual property rights through that exact thing, which is expression itself. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you compare that to a patent, which protects the the manner of manufacture, copyright protects the expression of an idea. So I guess that's an important distinction for us to make. Sometimes people say, well, you stole my idea, it was the subject of copyright. No, the idea itself isn't protected by copyright law. It's the expression of that idea in the particular form that it comes in. But it's not always so simple. Things like characters, plots, plot structures, those aspects of the expression of a particular idea can be the subject of copyright protection. And unlike many forms of intellectual property protection in Australia, like trademarks, patents, designs, plant breeders' rights, circuit layouts, I think, have I covered them all? Yeah, I think that's all of them. Copyright is not registered in Australia, is it? Exactly right. And And the crux of copyright is that expression. So as soon as 
someone expresses that idea, copyright attaches to it, at least in Australia. Yeah, that's right. And you're making that distinction because in the US, you can register your interest in copyright. Exactly. And registering your copyright in the US actually creates a rebuttable presumption in court that you own the copyright. So there is that presumption, but you can rebut it. Whereas you bear the onus of proof if you fail to register. Yeah, that's right. Unpublished works can still be subject to protection without being registered. Starting in Australia then, copyright vests on its creation, on the expression of the idea or the creation of the of the copyrighted work. And the rights that we're talking about when we talk about copyright, it is a bundle of rights, isn't it? It's the right to disseminate the work, the right to publish it, the right to copy it, but also the right to adapt and modify it, uh, which is one that we see all the time in the music industry. One of the rights you are granted as well is also the ability to license that thing or that piece of work. And if someone, you know in quotation marks, copies something without having that license, then we have an issue of potential copyright infringement. And that's exactly where I think the core of all these cases we're about to talk about lies. Yeah, absolutely. Because artistic merit intrinsically aside, what copyright really protects is the commercial interest in the artistic work. Exactly. You know, we have moral rights to protect the attribution of artistic works. Copyright is really about the commercial outputs. And you're right, if that work is used without the copyright owner licensing it, then obviously the copyright owner is missing out on income that they otherwise could have earned from their valuable intellectual property. And that's what most of these cases that we've described are alleging, that um, a creator, a relatively less well-known creator perhaps than the defendant, has missed out on some valuable valuable income from the much more well-known creator's use of their intellectual property. We've got a case right here in Australia that's a great example of this, isn't it, the, the Men at Work case? I would say it's the most prominent example. And, you know, Men at Work, they released this Down Under song in the early 80s, and I definitely wasn't born then. But even I know about this case, and obviously I know of the song. I think it's part of Australian history, and that even comes up in the case. Oh, absolutely. So in this case, it was actually in 2010, which was about 30 years after the original song was released. It was alleged by a group called Larrikin Music, and Larrikin Music owned the copyright to the old nursery rhyme, Cookborough Sits in the Old Gum Tree. Yes. It was alleged that Men at Work infringed their interest in that copyrighted work by including a four-note flute riff in the middle of their song. Well, it's not in the middle, is it? It's right at the beginning. Yeah, it's throughout the song. Okay. (laughs) It is right at the start. And the reason I say that is because, maybe we'll get to it a bit later, but there's an important bit of evidence, a bit of a smoking gun in the case about the intentional copying. Yeah, well, exactly right. So, like I said, Larrikin Music didn't bring this to the court straight away. They actually found out that there was actually a likeness between their song, well, not their song, the song that they own a copyright interest in, and... Men at Works, Down Under, through Spicks and Specs. Yes, that's right. So tell us a little bit about that. So there was a trivia question on Spicks, yes. Spicks and Specs, and it, it asked what song includes the Cook Rosets in the Old Gum Tree riff, and then the answer was Men at Works, Down Under, and someone at Larrikin Music watched that and said, hold on a second, that could make us some dollars. That was a very popular song. And 
We'll jump in on that. <laughs> and the smoking gun that I was talking about was that for a time when Men at Work performed the song, the lead singer, Colin Hay, would actually sing the words to the nursery rhyme live in place of the flute riff. Now, they didn't do that later on. But in early performances, that's the way they performed it live. And that was relied upon as evidence of a knowing or intentional copying. So essentially what was an issue in the case was whether, because as we said, it was a four-bar riff of Cook Barris, it's in Elk Gum Tree in what, a two-minute broader down-under song. So the real question was, was it a substantial part of that copyright being mm. taken? It'd be easy to say it's a two-minute, three-minute long song. It doesn't make up that much. They shouldn't you know, be entitled to all of the royalties or whatever, or uh, an amount of royalties because of the small song. But really, how the Australian court saw it, or Justice Jacobson in this instance, was that it's not whether or not it's a substantial part of the alleged infringing work, it's a substantial part of the copyrighted work initially. Yeah. There was two points there, right? One was it was quality more than quantity, right? A substantial part can be a meaningful or material part, if not a voluminous part but also yeah absolutely it was a substantial part of the original nursery rhyme the original nursery rhyme is only four bars long (laughs) so copying two bars of it is a pretty substantial part for quantity's sake as well so in the end based on that finding that it was actually a substantial part of the copyrighted work justice jacobson ordered that colin hay the men at work singer and the fellow songwriters of the song and the publishing company, the record company that owns the rights as well, had to pay Larrakin Music 5% of all future profits, as well as royalties dating back to 2002, and that was to right the wrong of not paying royalties of what you'd have to pay pay in a licence, if you had licensed a song. Yeah, which is not an insubstantial amount. No, definitely not, especially when they've made as much money as men at work. Now, that's our Australian case, iconic song, iconic case. As we said, in the US, copyright operates a little differently in that registration does create that rebuttable presumption. But otherwise, the kind of rights that it's protecting, the philosophy behind the existence of copyright, and I suppose the commercial motivations to protect or infringe copyright are largely the same, aren't they? And the cases that we've we've got there, um, but for that registration requirement, look pretty similar to the Australian position. So the case that actually spurred the idea to record this episode was... It's a bit of a good jumping point because it's a very, very popular song. And don't quote me, but I think it's got the third ever most Billboard top 100 number ones. Really? Um, Which, what is it? It's Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. What a banger. What and a banger. famously featured in one of those last scenes in Love Actually. Oh, famously. Great I Christmas knew that movie. as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, the look you're giving me, Jacob, tells me that you haven't seen Love Actually. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it is very popular and that's very clear. And um, we're, we're recording this episode in early October, so we should be hearing All I Want for Christmas is You over shopping centre speakers any day have. now. <laughs> you already have. I already have listened. So I have seen the Christmas decorations up in David Jones. That so really it, just it, it is stamps it as a, as a prominent song. And, and that might have been the reason for this potential case maybe coming about. And what this case was about was... The song All I Want for Christmas is You, and a musician called Andy Stone seeking $27 million or there or thereabouts in Australian dollars for financial loss because he wrote a festive song in 1989 called All I Want for Christmas is You. Now, he alleges that 
Mariah Carey and her co-writer, knowingly, willfully, and intentionally engaged in a campaign to infringe his copyright. And this would entitle him to a cut of the estimated 16 million copies that have been sold worldwide and the about $85 million in Australian dollars of royalties that over the past 30 years. It's no small amount of uh, Christmas presents, is it? So you'd see maybe it'd be a good outcome for him if this court case went his way. Now, the important part that I want to distinguish here is that Stone was simply alleging that she wrote a separate song under the same name to capitalise on its good reputation and use that as a springboard for her own song's career. Yeah, yeah, this is an important point, right? There's actually no musical similarity between the content of the songs. Stone alleges that his song had gained popularity and it had its own unique style, and Mariah Carey used the same title just to cause confusion. As we said, this case has not yet been ruled on. It's just been filed. But it's worth noting that if you look up the United States Copyright Office and you search the title, All I Want for Christmas is You, 177 works come up. Yeah, okay. So not a wholly unique title. But uh, good luck to him. And not 177 pending suits, No, I should say, <laughs> uh, so far as we know. Well, interesting. Watch this space. Oh, yes, certainly. Keep, keep your ear to the ground. Now, I mentioned earlier that Ed Sheeran, musician and occasional jurist, had something to say about a case about one of his songs, which there is a ruling on. This is about the song Shape of You. Now, artists named Sammy Chokri and Ross O'Donoghue claimed that Ed Sheeran's song Shape of You had ripped off their song, Oh Why. And you can kind of tell from the title of that song already which part of Ed Sheeran's work they might have alleged ripped off theirs. They said that the repeated O-I, 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 part of Shape of You. Sounds very similar to the O-Y, 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 O-Y hook in O-Y. And so the question was, had Ed Sheeran copied O-Y, or that particular aspect of the song? Exactly right. And I'm just going to note that that's Sam Chokri's song is O-W-H-Y. Uh, yes, yes. So it's, it's uh, a different word altogether, but obviously, as you guys can probably tell, it's easy to mix up those two phrases. So it's found in the cross-examination of Ed Sheeran because he was helped out by two other, two other blokes in writing his famous song, Shape of You, it was found that, uh, as a matter of fact, they did not copy Chokri's song. So the question was only made against Ed Sheeran. Did he hear the song, and did he then copy it in his song? And the finding by the court was that Sheeran had neither consciously nor subconsciously copied the OY work. Exactly. So the judge actually noted that there were similarities between the two songs, but he said that this could only be seen as a starting point for a possible copyright infringement case, as in, look at these similarities, look at all this, blah, blah, blah. But given that there were differences between all the other relevant parts, such as the, the chorus and, and the verses, he decided this exact one moment, or, you know, repeated moment in, in Ed Sheeran's song, was only was inspired by something that wasn't Chokri's song. The court also found that the particular musical notes that were used in that section of Shape of You were so short simple, commonplace and obvious in the context of the rest of the song that it is not credible that Mrs. Sheeran sought out inspiration from other songs that come up with it. And this is a critical part of that case. Mm. It's not the most glowing review of your writing, is it? <laughs> for the judge to say that it was short, simple, commonplace and obvious. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it helped me out in this instance, so I'm I sure it's true. 
And as we alluded to earlier, Ed Sheeran noted that this is a great point because there's only so many notes and very few chords used in pop music. Coincidence is bound to happen if 60,000 songs are being released every day on Spotify. That's 22 million songs a year, and there's only 12 notes that are available. And then the last one we were going to talk about today is the Katy Perry song, Dark Horse. Tell us a bit about that, Jacob. So if you listen to Katy Perry's Dark Horse... was actually alleged to have been ripped off from a young Christian rapper called Flame, a.k.a. Marcus Gray, in his, from his song, Joyful Noise. But, in fact, initially, the jury awarded Flame, Marcus Gray, $2.8 million as a payout for infringing yeah, that copyright. Pretty material award. Now, the interesting thing there, the part we're talking about here is called an ostinato. Right, which is a descending set of notes, right? So uh, it's a fairly common structure, I suppose you'd say. So they're um, two ostinatos, one a descending set of three notes and one a descending set of four notes. So, you know, you can see how that particular element of the piece might sound quite similar to any number of other ostinatos used in other words. Exactly. And so the jury definitely agreed and they said, that, well, those are very similar. But... That was then appealed, and the judge actually overturned that verdict, and he found that that melody, that ostinato, as you said, could be found in many other songs because mm. it wasn't particularly unique or rare. So I guess another scathing criticism <laughs> of the poor artist here. These, these uh, judgments were always a bit, sort of a bit negative about the, uh, the creative output of these pop musicians. But this is probably the one time that they're stoked about that sort yeah, of Yeah, exactly. You'd be happy to hear it. And then upon appeal again, a judge from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in America said that that original verdict from the jury probably likely would have suffocated musical creativity because if you find that an ostinato means that you infringe copyright, then no one can ever use an ostinato again. Yeah, absolutely. And he, re- he actually ruled that Gray was attempting to claim an improper monopoly over that conventional musical mm. building block. And much like Ed Sheeran's case, it was found that you can't, take that monopoly over commonplace musical elements and it would only make a starting point for a copyright infringement claim because a similar melody, as we said, is likely to occur given the limited amount of notes in music. So what do we take away from these cases? We've got the Men at Work case here in Australia where infringement was found to have occurred, some fairly persuasive evidence of of copying there. We've got the Ed Sheeran and Katy Perry cases decided in the more famous artist's favour, no, no infringement there, and I guess we'll wait to see with Mariah Carey's case. I suppose if you were to look for a feature that distinguishes the Men at Work case here in Australia from the Ed Sheeran and Katy Perry cases over, over in the US, it would be that in the Men at Work case, we've got a substantial part of a work, not a particular musical structure or a particular commonly used piece of music but a specific melody perhaps not a large part of the infringing work but a large part of the infringed work and a very recognizable part of the infringed work on the one hand in the men at work case whereas in the Ed Sheeran and Katy Perry cases we have what the judges described as fairly commonplace obvious structures of music or or features that you would see in many works that don't really distinguish the infringed or the allegedly infringed work from any other exactly right and I think that that 
is the most important distinction. We mentioned at the top of the episode that what really drives this sort of litigation is licensing fees, either the desire to avoid paying them or the desire to collect them from an infringing artist. But there are some musical works that you don't have to pay a license fee for so long as you attribute them properly. Exactly right. And these are called works that are licensed under Creative Commons. Yes. If you use Creative Commons work and you use it correctly, you're never going to have to deal with that grey area of copyright law. It's a Creative Commons itself is an organisation that created a system of free licences, so not paid. That means that creators can make their work usable by others for free and specify the terms under which it is licensed. The most common term in Creative Commons is that they the original author wishes to be attributed somewhere in the uh, work that uses their work subsequently. An example of this is that very intro music you heard at the start Yes. Sidebar. That piece of work is licensed under the license CC by 3.0 US, which means that we're able to use it in commercial products because it doesn't have that restriction, and we're able to remix and adapt it as we did. We cut it to be shorter for free, and the by part means that we just need to give that creator who originally made the work some attribution somewhere, and if you check the about section in anywhere, your platform of choice, then you'll see that we have attributed that work. Yeah, absolutely. Great example of, of Creative Commons work. Creative Commons licenses are used for all sorts of things. They're used for some literary works. They're used for some software as well in the open source community. And Creative Commons licenses are in common terms. So you can often find the terms, the terms and conditions, I should say, the legal terms of that license in a public place. So a very common form of Creative Commons license is the MIT license, which does allow for, you see this especially in the open source community and software development, allows for the use and modification of the Creative Commons work, including for commercial purposes, so long as it's attributed. And that just gets rid of all the fuss and the confusion. So moral of the story is, if only, you know, Men at Work used a Creative Commons work. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks, Jacob. You've been listening to the Hearsay Sidebar. Sidebar is our fun, free podcast about legal news. But if you're an Australian lawyer, you can sign up to the original Hearsay the Legal podcast at htlp.com.au. That's htlp.com.au to get all 10 of your CPD points by listening to entertaining interviews with lawyers, judges and other leading figures in the law on demand, on the go and at an unbeatable price. That was HTLP for Hearsay the Legal podcast. Hearsay Sidebar is produced by Ross Davis with help from Jacob Malby. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform because it helps other law geeks just like you find us. Thanks for listening.